Okay, so we continue with the Diamond Sutra book study, chapter 13. This having been said, the Venerable Subhuti asked, Bhagavan, what is the name of this Dharma teaching and how should we remember it? The Buddha told the Venerable Subhuti, the name of this Dharma teaching, Subhuti, is the perfection of wisdom. Thus should you remember it. And how so? Subhuti. What the Tathagata says is the perfection of wisdom, the Tathagata says is no perfection. Thus it is called the perfection of wisdom. Subhuti, what do you think? Is there any such Dharma spoken by the Tathagata? Subhuti said, no indeed, Bhagavan, there is no such Dharma spoken by the Tathagata. The Buddha said, Subhuti, what do you think? Are all the specks of dust in the billion world system of the universe many? Subhuti said, many, but the specks of dust are many, Sugat. And how so? Because, Bhagavan, what the Tathagata says is a speck of dust, Bhagavan, the Tathagata says, is no speck. Thus, it is called a speck of dust. And what the Tathagata says is a world system, the Tathagata says is no <coughs> system. Thus, it is called a world system. Some of you may remember that there's a question uh, in the miscellaneous koans about the world, right? Because it is not a world, it is called a world, right? You remember? Some of you. Buddha said, Subhuti, what do you think? Can the Tathagata, the Ahan, the fully enlightened one, be seen by means of the 32 attributes of the perfect person? And Subhuti said, no indeed, Bhagavan, the Tathagata, the Ahan, the fully enlightened one, cannot be seen by means of the 32 attributes of a perfect person. And why not? Because, Bhagavan, what the Tathagata says are the 32 attributes of a perfect person, Bhagavan, the Tathagata says, are no attributes. Thus, all they call the 32 attributes of a perfect person. And you can see he's basically saying the same thing over and over again in different ways. Mm -hmm. Which we have to hear over and over again in different ways so we can, so it can penetrate the very thick walls that we have created, the, the barriers that we, have, or we are putting up, that we refuse to put down. Right? Because it actually goes against everything we, it goes against the, 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 the most fundamental way of, of thinking process. The Buddha said, furthermore, Subhuti, if a man or a woman renounce their self-existence every day as many times as there are grains of sand in the Ganges and renounce their self-existence in this manner for as many kalpas as there are grains of sand in the Ganges and someone grasped but one four-line gata of this Dharma teaching and made it known and explained it to others. The body of merit produced as a result would be imme immeasurably, infinitely great. Right? And again, this is shattering, not so much of what we think, but it's there to shatter the way Subhuti thinks about things or about practice, about renunciation or the practice of renunciation. So I'm going to just read a little bit from a bit further and then we can uh, talk about it. Subhuti, Bill Porter says, Subhuti has finally begun to understand this teaching and ask for a name by which to remember it. The Buddha not only gives us a name, 
he shows us how it works as he applies this teaching first to the teaching itself, then to the world in which it is taught, and finally to those who teach it, all of which turn out to be empty of anything real. And if we would emulate such teachers, renunciation is of no help, for anything we might renounce is equally illusory. Hence, the Buddha does not suggest we renounce anything, for renunciation is also attachment. Right? I could be the one who has renounced, who have renounced this or that. I could be the one who turn, turns against my own thoughts or my own ideas of the world. Right? So then again, with that, I can actually strengthen, further strengthen a sense of self a separate sense of self in relation to breaking down the sense of self or in the service of breaking down the sense of self. This is where Arhant and Bodhisattvas part companies. Company. The Buddha asks us to simply, simply to see things as they are and to share this vision with others. The first of the Eightfold Path, right view. See things as they are. Buddhas do not arise from emptiness, but from this teaching, which liberates us from both delusions and emptiness, as well as from the renunciation of delusions and emptiness. You remember the Hakuin Song of Zazen, hearing this truth, heart humbled and grateful to praise and embrace it, to practice its wisdom, brings unending blessings, brings mountains of merit, and if we turn inward and prove our true nature, that true self is no self. Our own self is no self. We go beyond ego and past pleasure worlds. Our form now being no form in going and returning, we never return. Does it connect is the question. I don't know how you feel about this reading it, but personally, getting more and more immersed in it and reading more and, and working with three different translations of commentaries, it seems that everything connects very well. If you look at the Diamond Sutra and you look at all our chants, we look at our practice, we look at everything we talk about, everything we study, it just illuminates in a very clear way. Do you feel this? So thus far, what's going on? What, what, what do we see in this? 13 chapters, yes. Well, I mean, the one thing that I think is important to note here is something you've said before about letting go of something to not just immediately grab onto something else. So I see the sentences about renunciation as also attachment as renouncing something doesn't mean you're adopting something else in its place. There shouldn't feel that urge to go, well, I'm not this anymore, now I'm this, mm -hmm. or, or vice versa, and it's, and I think, you know, this is, a lot of this, of what we've read so far is, you're correct, it's connecting it, but it's also kind of the foundation upon which everything is, kind of springs from, it's very much what we chant about, you know, leaves and trees and stuff like that, mm -hmm. the, the hands and fingers. All those things where they can act independently, but they all kind of come back to a similar source at the end of the day and are connected in that, in that way. And you can e 
easily see it kind of pulsating through everything we do, but don't mistake it as that either. Mm -hmm. I think is the important step is to not just because you see it, you know, the, uh, just because you see it there doesn't mean it is. It's imbued with it, but it's not it. So uh, I, I like it's it. not it, as in you know when you see when you start to see. I, I think you know I'm I'm very I fall victim to it, and I think a lot of people do is seeing patterns you automatically kind of assume things are the same, or it's like you draw false equivalences maybe of, oh, well, these are basically the same thing. Mm -hmm. So if I notice patterns of we read this, and as you said, everything we chant mixes in with it, it might be easy to mistake that, well, then this is the Diamond Sutra is the only sutra I need to worry about, and everything else is basically just reiterating the exact same thing so why bother it's it's the same when you know you can't get one without the other it's they're connected but it's I guess it's not holding on to a fixed point still well that could be the danger right yeah. being exposed to to Dharma teachings for a while or you know chanting you know, the same things over and over again right it could be the danger of creating something out of it mm -hmm. You know, creating something out of what actually is there to shatter what we are the process of creation. In essence, we use we use it in the wrong way, yeah. right? And you know, I, I gave a talk to this guy, Shobhajan, and it's, I said something along the lines of the more we live, the more we die. Mm -hmm. Because the more we live, the older we are, the more experiences we have. Mm -hmm. And it gives us a sense of knowing, right? But that's illusory. That sense of knowing is illusory. Mm -hmm. So I was talking to some people who've been around for decades practicing and some beginners, first day. Mm -hmm. And I was telling them they have an advantage yeah. over us because we actually think we know something. We may think we know something yeah. about practice. It's a very dangerous thing. Yeah. You've, you've caught me on it with, with koan studies where everyone I've gone through, I've put in my Rolodex of, of reference mm -hmm. of sorts. Right. And, right. and my urge is like, oh, that's like that other one we didn't like. No. Just yeah. look at this one right here. Yeah. Stop trying to reference ones that you've worked with before or after. And yeah, there's similarities and they're worth noticing, but to yeah. use them as stand-ins uh, that get in the way of experiencing what you're working with right here. I think well, you use important. it as upaya. You use mm -hmm. it skillfully, right? It's not that you have to delete no. things from your memory. That's, that's, that will not make sense, yeah. right? <laughs> Uh, you can do the same thing over and over again. Yeah. And, right. So you do learn from experiences. It's just that the, the, the issue here is not not to learn. The issue that, that is brought up here is don't create anything from your experiences. Mm -hmm. And don't learn. But don't create a self out of that. Yeah. So we haven't gotten to it yet, but on the bottom of page 331, you know, there's so many words, right? There's words everywhere floating around and ideas and concepts and thoughts and things. So sometimes it's, you know, and we've talked about in the past that these are all pointers, right? This is not the truth, it points to the truth. So um, on the bottom of page 331. Um, we're not there yet, you're saying. I know, we're not there yet, but it's very important, I think, because it, 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 it clarifies this. Okay. It, it clarifies this and it cuts through it, I think. Um, he says, thus, in the teaching of the Dharma, there was nothing the Buddha could teach. All he did 
was protect beings from misconceptions by teaching them not to give birth to views and get rid of their attachments. Students should realize that this is all he did. So, you know, I think that when we look at something that's this dense and this thick, it's nice to have upaya that we can, you know, that we can use as, a, as an icebreaker to like clear away some of the things. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, and I think that that one phrase kind of kind of cuts through a little bit of, of what goes back to what you just you just talked about. Um, so that was that was all I wanted to say about that. Yeah, it cuts through, right? And uh, to to simply right, to not get too uh, to not get lost in a lot of words, uh, some of which we actually don't even understand, right? You know, because we don't use a lot of those words right? in in this way, and um, also a lot of commentary. Right? There's a lot there. Yeah, but all of it is. And the sutra itself is, is really saying one thing. Right. right. In many ways. But one thing does not mean we're done hearing it. No, no. But we don't have to hear it again and again. <laughs> exactly. Right? Because the, the, we have the very strong force in us, or forces in us, that are actually pushing us away from this. Yeah. Right? Karma is very strong. Yeah. I think even to that point too, I think, you know, when you make that effort to like cut through the noise and get at the heart of the matter and the, the essence of it, there is that urge to just disregard everything. And you said, oh, it's, it's really just one thing, so everything else, I can skip yeah. all this, and you can't separate them as well as you think. And so it's, it might seem, you know, repetitive or redundant the way, especially those sentences where it's essentially saying the same thing in different ways over and over and over again. I think it's us maybe um, underestimating how deeply, deeply rooted uh, the, the thought patterns are that those words are trying to break through. Um, yeah, and, and this is vast and inconceivable. Yeah. All this is happening within the vast and inconceivable. If it's vast and inconceivable, then what can you hold on to? Mm -hmm. How can you put parameters? How can you divide? How do you decide what's enough? <coughs> hmm? How so do you decide what's enough? Or not, not enough or, you know. What is it? What is that word? Yeah. It's an empty kind of signifier, I guess. Because that word itself, right, yeah. is based on something that is not <coughs> vast and inconceivable, right? It's mm -hmm. based on something that is very defined and limited. Yeah. Because you, you, we throw parameters, right? Well, you know, as Rinzai said, you know, how can you hammer a nail into a cloud? Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So good. Uh, we'll keep going, and then please chime in. So, right, uh, we'll open it up. We'll keep opening it up. And the deep Holy says, I'll keep going. The name of the sutra, however, is normally not given until the final chapter. The fact that Subhuti asked this question at this point has led, and he's disagreeing with that, has led uh, a number of commentators to wonder if this does not represent an earlier conclusion to which the remaining chapters were later uh, appended. Others contend that this simply marks the end of the first half of the sutra and that Subhuti was merely expressing his awareness that the Buddha had answered 
a set of questions that began this discourse. The remaining chapters, according to this view, were not added as an afterthought, but ex to expand on the Buddha's initial answer. Right. And I, I could see that. I could see from reading it, from looking at it, and from what we're talking about, too, that we do need to, so you kind of get an initial overview. Okay, now let's go deeper. Right? You get an overview. Okay, here's what we're talking about. Now let's dive deep. So when you dive deeper, of course you go back and you look at things we already brought up initially. But then what changes is, it's kind of like, you know, when you need something over and over again, it softens, right? You know, you break. Uh, you know, you, you well, work. actually, oddly enough, the more you work with it, the tighter it gets. So you have to leave it alone and let it relax alone, again. Which is exactly what we need to do sometimes, right? To leave it alone and then go back to yeah. it. Yes. Uh, let time do its thing, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so then you need it, you need it, you relax it, you soften it, you, you the process of working something out. And it takes time. So it's not necessarily that the, the, the way we do it needs to change, it's just that we have to somehow get the energy out again and up again to go and do it again and again and again. And often this is a, a challenge because we check the box. Diamond Sutra, good, move on. What's next? I have that list. <laughs> Are you checking it twice? <laughs> Yeah, because this is the third time I've been through it, so it's got three checks. <laughs> it does happen, actually, and, I, and I've encountered that many times. You know, people ask me what to read, and I, I, I recommend a book or two, and they read that, and then they come back after a while, and okay, what's next? <laughs> you know, I need to read. Well, why? Well, why can't you just take a break right now, and, and then let that, let yourself, or let, let this be immersed, right? Let it be absorbed in the body, in the mind, you know, let it do what it needs to do. Don't read anything for So this is perfection of wisdom, right? And it's like trying to polish a diamond. Mm -hmm. This is a diamond, you try to polish it and you work with it and you work with it. That's all it is. There is that, and yet there is also at the same time the understanding that that, that it's already perfect as is. Even, even if, if there are, you know, uh, some kind of blemishes on it, it, it doesn't make it less perfect. It doesn't mean the goal is to polish it to a certain level of whatever. No, the diamond has multiple facets. That's why you, you have different angles. Yes, and same diamond, multiple facets. see that. Yeah. Um. Right, and actually it's a good example because some facets are always going to be murky, and some facets are going to be clear. Yet it's the same diamond, right? Which, is, which means everything, everything is a part of that vastness. Nothing can be outside of it. The chaos and the clarity are both within that. Well, because if they'll be outside, there'll be a lot of duality. Yes. Because there is no murkiness, there is no shyness. Yes, no mud, no lotus. So, before he doesn't agree with this view, he says that Subhuti asked, asked the name of this teaching because he has finally begun to understand it. Previously, he was limited by his attachment to emptiness and to renunciation, right? 
and serve more or less as a foil for the Buddha's teaching of the perfection of peace. <coughs> so in a way, they're saying that uh, Subhuti was used for us to examine it, right? From here's this perspective, and here's what we're talking about. Right? So, and also we look at it based on the time that this was put together, right? You know, it was very strong uh, path of understanding of uh, the need to not to renounce, right? The need to let go, to go against the body. And the Buddha himself did that, right? For six years, he was an ascetic. That's what he did. He turned away from the needs of the body for the purpose of letting go, as if the body is an obstacle, or as if the needs of the body are an obstacle to realization. And at the end of that, he came out saying, no, this is not an obstacle, because there's nothing there. Right? And when, you know, when we renounce something, we're saying that this is an obstacle, right? I am actually giving something power by saying I need to renounce it. I'm saying this is controlling me. I need to turn away from that means I am seeing this, I am afraid of it. Right? This is a problem for me. So I'm going to go somewhere else. Like going after the monastery and coming back, right? Which is a big issue for all of us as practitioners. Right? You know, we, we say, okay, I want to go over there because this is a problem. I want to stay there because again, this is a problem. <laughs> right? Yeah, we've had that conversation. Right, and our day-to-day -day activities, our, our mundane activities, we, we label them as an issue or as a place in which I cannot find what I can find somewhere else. Right? Then it says, in addition to asking the Buddha the name of this teaching, Subhuti also asked how should we remember it. The Sanskrit word here is Dalaya, which translates as to remember. But Dalaya not only means to retain in the mind, but also to express in action. It's actually a very important point. Thus, Subhuti is not only asking the Buddha for the name of the teaching, but also for a summary of the teaching itself and in a way actualizing the fundamental point. How do I actual, how do we actualize dwelling nowhere? Right. <coughs> Huynen says, nothing is valued more in the world than an individual life. Over the course of countless kalpas, bodhisattvas give their lives to other beings for the sake of the Dharma. And although their merit is great, it doesn't compare to the merit from holding on to a single gatha, right, single verse of this sutra, the four lines. If one offers up one's life over the course of many kalpas, but doesn't understand the meaning of emptiness and doesn't drive falsehood from one's mind, one is basically an ordinary being. But once a person keeps this sutra in mind, the concept of self-being suddenly disappears, illusions vanish, and all at once, one becomes a Buddha. Any quick thoughts about that? Do you want to share? I think this is actually very clear. What Huynen is saying is very clear. 
in terms of okay, what does it mean to uphold uh, a sutra, a four line? What does it mean to recite? There is, of course, the, the, the verbalizing, there is the making the sound, which does serve a purpose, but does it end with that? Taking that four lines, knowing it, and also embodying it and passing it um, to Buddhists down the line so that it, it's transmitted. Yes. Living it. How do I live it? Right? So we say it again and again and again and again, right? And it starts to change something. The words are meant, as I said before, the words are meant to, to dissolve the barrier or to shed light on the barriers, right? At first. And then little by little, we do actually realize that there is no barrier to dissolve. That the barrier itself is a creation. But we have to first work with it as if this is there to dissolve a barrier. And then over time in practice, we realize letting go is also an illusion. As he's saying here, renunciation, you don't need to renounce anything because there's nothing there. If you, need that, if you say I have to renounce it, you're saying there's something there. But it is, it is a process, right? So we begin by saying, I gotta let go of this, obviously, right? And then little by little realize, what am I letting go? Or we ask, well, what am I letting go of? What is it that I need to let go of? But what is it, what's there as an obstacle for me right now? And you pull the comments on that again. The defining characteristics of uh, the perfect person, <coughs> right? We have to watch out for the word perfect because that has a lot of baggage with it, uh, is renunciation. However, re renunciation itself does not lead to liberation. Buddhas arise from this teaching of Prajna, which is no teaching. Buddhas are all are Buddhas because they are not attached to the concept of a self. Hence, they find no self to renounce. Whereas the, whereas the previous section of this chapter regarded the entities of the external universe, the above and following sections consider the entities of the internal world namely the atoms and the world system of the universe we call the self, namely the Buddha self and the individual self. That works? Okay. <clears throat> Thikinatan says, Subhuti asked what this, this sutra should be called and how we should practice the, its teaching. And the Buddha answers uh, that it should be called the diamond that cuts through illusion. This is actually... Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's, uh, title, The Diamond That Cuts Through Illusion. The diamond has the capacity to cut through all ignorance and afflictions. It also says that we should practice in an intelligent way, that we should learn to look deeply so that we will realize that even transcendent understanding is not an independently existing Dharma and that his teaching has no separate nature. That is why Subhuti says that Tathagata has nothing to teach. Is that clear so far? 
So the diamond that cuts through each. <clears throat> Chapter 14. I'm going to read this uh, in sections and then uh, go to the point of the commentaries. By the force of this dharma, the Venerable Subhuti was moved to tears. Wiping his eyes, he said to the Buddha, How remarkable, Bhagavan, how most remarkable, Sugata, is this dharma teaching that the Bhagavan speaks for the benefit of those being beings who seek the foremost of paths. For the benefit of those who seek the best of paths, and from which my own awareness is born. Bhagavan, I have never heard such teaching as this. Right? They shall be the most remarkable blessed of Bodhisattvas, Bhagavan, who hear what is said in this sutra and give birth to the perception of its truth. In how so, Bhagavan? A perception of its truth is no perception of truth. Thus does the Tathagata speaks of a perception of its truth as a perception of its truth. Should I look at the, I'll read the commentary and then we can we'll see where we're at with it. Subhuti is overwhelmed by, by this teaching. At the beginning of this sutra, when he asked the Buddha how someone could travel the Bodhisattva path, he was not prepared to have journeyed so far, so soon, and is overcome by emotions, which is itself revealing of the difference between a Shravaka, voice hearer, and the Bodhisattva path especially as it comes from an Alhan who earlier described himself as free from passion. This is an example of what later became known as the sudden enlightenment school of Buddhism, in which the emotional impact of a teaching does what, sorry, emotional impact of a teaching does what meditation and reflection are unable to do. And this is referring to direct encounter through a koan, chanting can do that, or direct encounter with anything, or hearing something, right? actually to hear something. It doesn't matter what it is, it could be the most mundane thing that you've heard many times before. If, if we truly open up to it and we allow it to penetrate, it can actually shatter all the resistances and break down everything instantly. And it doesn't have to be what we call Dharma teaching or related to what we call Dharma teaching. It could be a bird in the sky or a tree or a leaf falling down or a person passing by. Anything has the power to shatter, to liberate us. You want to say something? Yes. I thought it was very interesting how um, the emotional impact is held so high here. Um, and so I was starting to kind of reflect on my own thoughts about that or how I experienced it. Um, and I'm kind of seeing it as, um, we, we like to think about things and try to understand them and figure them out. But if you're actually, if you can listen to something with your whole heart, you end up with a very different kind of knowing. Um, and that's kind of what I was feeling about this passage, how, how powerful that can actually be if you allow that to happen that way. 
Yes, and, and, and this is what Zen is always pushing us towards. <coughs> Away from conceptualization into actualization and experiential, in a way to, to live experientially, not intellectually. Not to think our way through life, to actually be there, to immerse ourselves fully. And it can be actually, it can be, there, is, there are fears. There are fears that are there and they prevent us often from jumping in or diving into situations. Because there's a lot of what if. What if? What if I'm rejected? What if they don't like me? What if it doesn't work? What if I fail? What if I succeed? Right? And we end up thinking while life is happening. And it's not only there just because it's there, it's there to wake us up from thinking. No, I was just gonna say, um, it almost becomes, instead of thinking through life, life and you are in a symbiotic relationship of learning from each other. It's like this constant cycle of offering. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Yeah, it's constant becoming. Yeah, it's constant. It's, it's mm -hmm. if you, and you look around, and that's what we, that's actually, that's, that's what we see. Mm -hmm. We see a constant process that never stops to think about itself or to define itself. Right? What, what does that? Except for us. <laughs> what else does that? Just, a, I mean, admittedly, I'm a bit hesitant about it just because I feel like a lot of the moments, at least from what I've, you know, the stories that are told in these, these things of, of sudden enlightenment are just that, it's sudden, it's serendipitous. But then on the other side of it, I've seen, you know, you hear people, stories, uh, teachers trying to bring their students to sudden enlightenment, whether it's a smack upside the head or, or something physical to kind of jar them yeah. out of their experience. and. At what point does that feel like manufacturing something that should be happening organically? And it, it should still have the blindsiding effect. Like he very clearly, Sabuti was not ready uh, or didn't anticipate being overcome with emotion. Uh, he couldn't plan for it, it and it just happened. Um, but then you get people that go in there expecting that to happen or wanting it. I'm here for a spiritual experience. I'm yeah. here for, yeah. I'm here to be brought into this. I'm waiting for this sudden awakening to, to happen. And then there's a teacher that might be actively engaging in practices that are meant to jar that out of one, where it seems like the ones, the stories that I like and the moments I can point to in my life where I've had something of that I never anticipated blindsided you. You know, you don't see it coming because it is like that. Where yeah. suddenly you saw a bird or something, and it articulated something that you couldn't find the words for. And in, 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 in that moment, it was so simple. But you cannot manufacture. You can't manufacture. No. And, uh, and 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 those stories. Um, if you remember Umon, I don't know if you remember. I think his uh, foot broken, right? Yeah. Okay, so he went to see the teacher multiple times <clears throat> and the teacher would close the door every time right mm -hmm. 
right? So then, and, and that was the process actually, mm -hmm. right? So then at the time, or he already knew what the teacher's gonna do, so he stuck his foot in the door to prevent it <laughs> from happening and that's why, you know, the foot was broken, yeah. right? But uh, you brought up an interesting analogy mm -hmm. to that, right? You know, we talk about uh, the, the gradual and the sudden, right? Mm -hmm. And you actually uh, talked about popcorn. Yeah. <laughs> Which I thought was actually a very good example, right? Yeah. It, it's happening over a period of time, but then there is a pop, but yeah. without the, the period of time of giving it, exposing it to heat, there won't be a pop. So there is sudden and there is gradual. Mm -hmm. And if it wasn't for the gradual, there would be no sudden. And just because we can't perceive the gradual doesn't mean yes. that it was Yes, and it's boring. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. we, we say, oh, it's, it's tedious. Mm -hmm. It's tedious, right? It's like, oh, this again, this again, yeah. this again. But that's the process. Yeah, we've been that's setting needed. the table the whole time, even though we don't know it. Right. So it's, yeah, it's, but I but yes, so. but there is the need for uh, exposure. Yeah, I guess what I'm also looking at it from the standpoint of is from 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 practice of why we sit on the cushion. Are we sitting on the cushion to just cultivate the practice in and of itself, or are we sitting on the cushion to practice to hopefully one day achieve this great awakening? And I'm very leery of, of that, of the latter one. I feel like there's a lot of pitfalls there, a lot of opens up to disappointment, and I, I think it misses the point. Like the sudden comes because you're so just focused on what's in front of you. Yeah, you know, I don't think we should even uh, be concerned about that at all. Yeah. You know, what we, what we need to uh, be concerned with or focus on is how we practice. Yeah. There's nothing there anyway. I mean, we keep hearing, there's nothing there, so <laughs> where are we gonna yeah. <laughs> keep going and returning? You never yeah. go anywhere, you never get get to anywhere, yeah. right? This is what the happens all the time. So, yeah. so where are we going? Yeah. In going and returning, you never leave home. You're not going to arrive anywhere else because there are no, because there is the other side of the ruler, right? You mm -hmm. know, which has no lines. Mm -hmm. Which brings it back to this. We study this. Mm -hmm. It is a relief, actually. I, 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 I think <laughs> it's ironic to feel that way, but I, I feel it, I see it as a relief. Mm -hmm. Realizing that you don't, you can't go anywhere, ever. Mm -hmm.
that progress, that process of it changes. And yet you never know when it's going to change again. Like yeah. Right now, I'm like today I was sitting like, oh, let me just be with myself. And then the next sitting I might be <laughs> somewhere else. <laughs> but that continue, continuity, that leads us who knows where or going somewhere. And then realize there's nothing here and then go back. But I did feel like the Buddha, when um, Julie mentioned that he went against his body to realize that he wasn't there. Like there wasn't an obstacle, but that's what we all doing, doing mm -hmm. things that we're like, oh man, really, <laughs> all yeah. this with that, yeah. and then just come back. But that's when the real understanding comes, I guess, with place to reaching or not reaching. But if you want to sit for reaching enlightenment, I someone told me that once. If you want to sit for it, just go ahead and sit and and, and, and you see come. Yeah, what's the first? <laughs> and well, I was like, okay. <laughs> so you know the story of that. Um, I think it was with Mazumi Roshi's uh, uh, Sangha, somebody was really, really gung-ho on sitting a lot and all that, and Mazumi Roshi once told him, you see the statue, you're never going to beat him. <laughs> 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 He's always going to sit more better than you. Than you. <laughs> right, and you know, I mean, it, it, it's a funny thing, but he meant you're going to become like a piece of statue. Is that what you want? These two monsters are there for their friends, and they're mm -hmm. and one is oh, the Well, he started to polish the rock to make a mirror. Yeah. And he said, yeah. "You're never going to make a mirror out of a stone." Mm -hmm. And he said, "You're never going to make a Buddha out of a stone." So, what you were saying, actually, uh, Tao once says it's a short quote, but it fits very well with what you were saying. Walking into the distance, traveling since your youth, crossing so many rivers, climbing so many peaks, until one day you find the road to your old home. <laughs> you finally you realize how long the trip has been. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's very well what you're saying. So yeah, but we have to do it. We have to do it, mm -hmm. right? But is there also a trap in that, in the sense of, because we have to do it, somebody's going to con conceive of it as the kind of a, the checklist thing again like in yeah. order for me to get here I'm going to have to go through intense suffering and <laughs> all this other stuff and like kind of put myself through the ringer as like a rite of passage or a vetting process but that's creating something out of it isn't it yeah right and so we have to be aware of that creation mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we have to be aware of that you know this uh, going back home reminds me of uh, you may remember that with Seinfeld joke in the stand-up comedy. He was talking about uh, uh, the jockey and the horse, right? In the horse race, when they run around, uh, they, they run. So the, the jockey is on the horse, you know, and then hurrying the horse. Let's go, let's go, right? And the horse is like running, running, running. And then they get to where they started, and the, the horse looks at the jockey and says, Why didn't you tell me? We, could, we should have stayed here. We would have been first. <laughs> <laughs> you should have told me that's where we're going. <laughs> Just stay here. Yeah, you stay here. You don't have to go anywhere. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to put all that energy into right. you know. And but in a way, in a way, you do feel this way. You do feel this way. Yeah. Not that I mean, you know, it's it's no regrets, right? But because it is essential to to exhaust something, we have to exhaust something. And until we experience it, and we try, we try, we try. That's the thing about koans. That's why koans are so good because. 
and so effective because we try to figure it out through the regular familiar way, right? And it doesn't work. And then we go, okay, this doesn't work. So maybe my, as intelligence, I think I am, maybe there are things I cannot figure out with that, with the, with the intellect, right, or logic. So I put it down, how else can I do that? And that by itself is opening up, open, opening us up to other possibilities of being, of interacting. I think I read something, no, to become enlightened one way or another through practice or through suffering we get to choose yeah, we get to choose you know practice or, or through a really bad experience that wakes you up and one or the other mm -hmm. what do we not no no at all <laughs> I mean like that like that monk who tried and tried and tried with this teacher and was like, okay, I can't do this. And he went off on a mountain by himself, which, which, how come I can't remember any names today? Um, and then he, his rake, he was raking, and then the stone hit the tree. Yeah. You know. Yeah, it's the, it's the point of maturation. Uh, when does the, you know, because the chicken sits on the egg, and when the time comes, then there is, Picking and picking, right? So then the inside and the outside is the, the timing is, is crucial. So that's going back to what you were saying with the shout or beating, whatever, right? You know, so the timing, if the timing is not crucial, is not there, then the egg will spoil, yeah. right? And there will not be, right? The, the chip um, will not come out. So you have to keep it in, in certain conditions mm -hmm. until it's ready, the chip is ready to come out, and then the picking and picking happens and the, the chip comes out, alive. So keep going with the sutra. Hearing such a Dharma teaching as this, Bhagavan, it is, not, it is not remarkable that I should trust and believe it. But in the future, Bhagavan, the final epoch, in the final period, the final 500 years, Bhagavan, those beings who grasp this Dharma teaching, memorize it, recite it, master it, and explain it in detail to others, they shall, shall be most remarkably blessed. Moreover, Bhagavan, they shall not create a perception of a self, nor shall they create a perception of a being, a life, and a soul. They shall create neither a perception of, nor no perception. And why not? The perception of a self is no perception, a perception of a being, a life, a soul is also no perception. And why not? Because Buddhas and Bhagavans are free of all perception. He's talking about us, right? He's talking about us many years later, after and not being uh, exposed to the Buddha, to, to, to this uh, expression of deep realization. So what we have is the, the teachings. Right? That's what we rely on, the teachings. And we read this, and we recite it, and we chant it. So what he's saying is you know, that those who will realize it later are going to be even greater, right, or, or go deeper because they don't have you, he was telling him, as the example. Right? And it's actually, and, and it is challenging to maintain, we all know, to maintain practice. Right? It's challenging to maintain practice. 
week after week after week, month after month, year after year. You know, and sometimes it's discouraging, sometimes encouraging. Sometimes you want to quit. And, you, and, and sometimes we think we got somewhere and we realize I got nowhere because here I am dealing with the same stuff again. And you know, those are the things we have to deal with. But then you go back to the teachings, go back to not relying on the teaching, but allowing the teaching to reflect something. Not that we have to put the book on a pedestal, but to see it and then to allow it to mirror something to us, which we embody. Then we're not relying on anything. And this brother comments, Subhuti is foremost among the Buddha's disciples in his understanding of emptiness and must have been aware of how difficult it was for his contemporaries to grasp and believe a teaching that transcends both existence and non-existence. And since understanding diminishes over cosmic time, Subhuti was also aware that beings in the future would have been greater, would have, gr would have greater obstacles to surmount in comprehending such a teaching. And yet the greater the difficulty in understanding such a teaching, the greater the merit. Thus, those who do so in the future shall be most blessed of all. As St. Charles says, upon meeting a Buddha or a sage, to believe it is not difficult. To believe when the way has disappeared, that is most remarkable. The great trust. Mm -hmm. We're going to say that? Yeah. Good. And it reminds me of this. Um, you got to say it faster next time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you were more sudden than I was, I guess. But um, no, I was going to say it's, uh, I forget what it might have been, what philosopher talked about it, but it was about. That's this guy. Yeah, it, I think it was Hegel. It was some point. I know you don't like him. But, um, I don't <laughs> but, um, what but, uh, did he say? It was something about it was. Did he make the Buddha the it was about empiricism. About when the sun sets, we don't see the sun, but we know it's still there and it'll come back tomorrow. Just because it's not directly empirically visible to us in that moment. So we don't experience we it. We don't experience it. We don't it. see it, but we trust. But we trust, yeah. Right. We trust. And it's very important to, to maintain the great trust because there are many times that we actually want to quit. But quitting creates something too. Mm -hmm. I'm creating something to quit. And I'm creating someone who can create. Mm -hmm. So wanting to quit is, is, is also a way to deepen. Yeah. Right? When you look at it this way, it's like, okay, what am I doing? Like, oh, creating somebody who's exhausted and tired from the practice. <coughs> Take a nap. Practice again. Yeah. Dig deep, right? William says, during the last 500 years when the end of the Dharma is approaching and the age we are, I think, at that age now, and the age of sages is in the distant past, all that exists is the teaching of the written word. If someone has a doubt, there is nowhere to go to resolve it, 
and people cling steadfastly to their delusions. They remain unaware of worthlessness, run around becoming attached to forms, and continue being reborn in the realm of existence. It's what we see all the time, right? Be lost. At such times as this, those who hear this profound sutra and believe it with a pure heart and realize the truth of worthlessness are truly remarkable. Thus, they are said to be the most remarkably blessed. So, Prabhupada Sabuti restates what he sees as the one condition necessary for implementing this teaching freedom from perceptions. If the mind contains a single delusion, it does not have room for emptiness. I love that statement. Right? If uh, the mind contains a single delusion, it does not have room for emptiness. We have to make room for emptiness. Oh, right? Isn't that amazing? But to make room for emptiness is actually to recognize our own emptiness. To, to see that we are empty of ourselves. And by realizing that, we make room, as he says, for emptiness. Interesting use of words, I think, right? Because well, how do you make room for nothing? You don't give validity to your thoughts, right? You don't take your, yourself and your thoughts too seriously. <coughs> and by doing that, naturally, we give room, we allow room and space for nothing, for no perception. And then it goes, if it doesn't have room, if and if it doesn't have room for emptiness, it doesn't have room for prajna, for wisdom. Still, there is more to this teaching than emptiness and prajna. All those who has advanced single, sorry, since uh, claiming in chapter 7 that sages arise from what is uncreated, he still thinks freedom from perception is the defining attribute of a bodhisattva. It's interesting, right? Because he may... And what this is saying, he may let go of doing it in one way, but he did not let go of the way he was operating before. So now he may be holding on to something else. Right? In this case, how, what is, uh, what are the all other definitions or the definition of a bodhisattva? Mm -hmm. So I can let go of this, and I'm going to hold on to that. And th that is, and this is not sabuti; it's us, right? And uh, we were saying before that we can let go of something almost with a promise, or we want a promise of being able to hold to, to, hold to something else. Right? So we let go, but we really don't let go of the one who is holding on. So I may open the hand, one hand, but then the other hand is already grasping onto something else. Kind of like a monkey, right? Mm. So the, the attribute of a bodhisattva, that anyone who is free of perception of a self, a being, a life, or a soul, must be on the path of Buddhahood. But this is the mind, the mindset of an arhan, right? Not a bodhisattva. What the Buddha does not yet realize is that the perception of no perception are all grind or grist for a bodhisattva's dharma mill and are the means by which a bodhisattva, as Lao Tzu said, empties the mind but fills the stomach. 
You heard that before? Empty the mind, fill the stomach. What do you think it means? When you eat, you eat. <laughs> well, it's, um, you know, it's, it's not being, attached is the wrong word, but it's, it's not being attached to the act of eating. It's just actually doing eating, actually being eating, right? So you're not thinking about eating, you're eating. You feel the stomach. And then you, you, so if you look at that analogy, right, you feel the stomach, right, you eat, you nurture, you nurture the body that is no body, right, and then you actualize it, you use that as upaya, so you actually are fueling the, the, the work of a bodhisattva, right, right, so you empty the mind, because it, it, it does both, it empties the mind, but it actually, so the actual is the fundamental point, right? You take it and you do deep wisdom. doing deep Paramita, really so empties of all things. It's the doing, but the doing needs fuel. Eat. Right. Eat, rest, keep going. Right, so the eating itself is practice. Right. And it's fueling your ability to expound the teachings. Right. And to save others. Two things at once. Yeah. But yes, back to what you were saying, you know, it's, but you're not eating to save anybody, you're just eating. It's like the prayer you're saying, no thought is wasted. Over, over. Yes. As for the revolving wheel of the Dharma, no thought is wasted. Right. But we do actually, when we eat, right, when we chant, before and after, we do address that fact, whether we, we are grateful and we eat so we can keep practicing, right? Our body is now nurtured, right? We have the nutrients that we need to sustain the body so we can do what we need to do. But we don't think of anything, like we don't make anything out of it. Yes. Like the food, do I like it, I don't like it, I'm gonna save someone or I'm gonna do this with it. Yes. We just do it and then whatever has to happen, exactly. we're ready for it. Yeah. Exactly, and in that, we are also embodying there is nothing to reject. Right? We're not eating a grain of rice a day. Right? There's, there's this kind of eating too, which the Buddha practiced. But we don't, so we, we, it's not too little, not too much, right? It's just enough. This is the meaning of, of, of the Oki, it means just enough. We get you know, three small bowls, and that's it. And we eat what we eat and move on. Anything else about that before we move on? Good? Okay. Have your quotes here. We'll move on. Okay, so back to the sutra. This having been said, the Buddha told the Venerable Subhuti, so it is, Subhuti, so it is. And those being those beings shall be most remarkably blessed, Subhuti, who, who are not alarmed, not frightened, and not distressed by what is said in this sutra. And it actually can be alarming and distressing, right? Because it goes to the heart of what gives us comfort. Right? It goes to the heart of what gives us comfort, 
and he's telling us that there is nothing there. So it can be alone. And how so, Subudi? Subudi, what the Tathagata proclaims as the best perfections is that in truth, no perfection. Moreover, Subudi, what the Tathagata proclaims as the best of perfection is also proclaimed by countless Buddhas and Bhagavans. Thus, it is called the best of perfections. So, perfection, you know, what is our relationship with that word? Very important to look at. Right? It's loaded. <coughs> it really is loaded. Right? When you look at uh, success and failure, and yeah, we have so many connotations to this, right? And you know, we just to examine, we have to look at what do I feel about this? When I hear this word perfection, do I feel like I'm never going to get there? Do I feel like I am that? What does it do? The way I see it in these sutras, it seems like um, a process of learning. You understand something and then the teacher can kind of poke through that and say, yes, I see that you understand that, but can we make this like something else? So mm -hmm. it's um, a perfection of the wisdom behind the teaching, but it's not, um, not like you're ever at a perfect spot. There's always some kind of growth. It's continually improving upon what you've already understood. So how do we, so we look at perfection and we look at nothing fixed or no fixedness, right? How do you measure it? Because perfection, our connotations of the word perfection has to do with measurements, right? With some kind of, you know, yeah, we, we quantify. But how do you, you see, it's all included, it's <coughs> vast and boundless, right? That is perfection. Nothing is outside of it. And it's inherent because it doesn't come and go. It doesn't grow or diminish. And when we think about perfection too, you know, like who's, who's looking at it? Yes. <laughs> who's looking at the uh, perfection, you know? Uh, I mean, Somebody might think that a sunny day is a perfect day, and somebody that needs rain, you know, it is raining, oh my God, it's a perfect day, it's raining, you know, whose perception is it that's looking at it? Right, so you say, you know, what is perfection without the perception of me? Yeah. Right? What is perfection without the perception of a self? <clears throat> you might read something and you think, oh my God, I can't believe this, it's just so boring, I can't grasp it, you know? And then somebody else might read the same passage and say, oh my God, this is perfect. This is what brought me to understanding. Yeah. Right? So it's always a, a perception. But that isn't that when you say this, that what's perfect? Perfection. But there's no perfection in this. No. That's yes. why they name it. Yes, there right? is. Right? The perfection is no perfection. There's no right? perfection. That there's no room for anything. Yeah. When you. I mean, there is no room to say that there is a, you know, the, it's raining outside, I like it, I don't like it. There's no room for that if you are tight. And that's the perfection, which is nothing else than just being here. There's no more. There's nothing to do for it. Right, you don't have to measure, you don't have to do anything. 
you have to stop the tomorrow. Right. It's what's there. It's what's realized when we don't get caught up. Right? It's what's there. It's what we realize has always been this way. When we stop measuring and counting and comparing and judging. So that's why, you know, when we sit, we just, we say, right? We just sit. Yeah. And you're sitting because you trust, but there's no, no expectation. There's no, it, of course, you find out that as you sit, you know, you sit better, you sit longer, you sit more. Yeah, but then you can get caught up in sitting, right? You can get, up, get caught up in the one who is sitting better. And then again, I feel I am closer to perfection in sitting in comparison to the person to other people who are not doing so, so well with that or to how I was before and I'm inching my way to perfection or whatever, right? So, but since it's always been this way, all we have to do is just step away and, and experience. I was just gonna say, I, I thought I knew how to be perfect. <laughs> this is true. Until I saw someone else doing something that it looked perfect. You know what I'm saying? But it was a different perspective. So I feel like, because I still, like, well, I don't want to speak for myself, but there is that um, conditioning of being perfect. Let's, example of bodies. Yeah. What's perfect, you know? Yeah, you can be chubby and consider yourself perfect, but how many of us we see that doing that, feeling good with themselves, right? For example, I'm just putting yeah. a very yeah. simple example, but there are until you see someone that is actually happy with what they have, and then I realized, oh, that is perfection, if it makes any sense. But I, when I plan, I plan my wedding, mm -hmm. and it was perfect the way I saw it, because yeah. that's perfect for yeah. me. But then it came out totally different of what I planned, but it still was perfect. Yeah. So that those little glimpses of life saying like, "Hey, look, it's not what you, it's not your perfection, but yet still perfect," it's been helping me to go get away from my perfect, and knowing that everything is perfect, like what she said, it just depending on the perception of people, but that doesn't make it less or more or perfect or not perfect but it, but it's really i do feel like those words i can see that going yeah. into my mind in a way of perfect so then you know how you can make mistakes right. or perfect the great perfection even the right view right that word right yeah. i still can connect it with what was right according to how i grew up what is right yeah you know, and I, I do see how it plays with yeah. this part here when these words or when I read something, I'm like, oh, perfection. And it creates some sort of... It creates a perception of the self. And this is yeah. to back to, to the words that are used here over and over again. It's very important, right? To see that this is exactly what that means. That word creates... A per I create with that word a, a perception of the self. Mm -hmm. With perfection, a perception of the self, right? And I am the one who is now going to be measured up by that. Or I'm going to measure, or I'm going to measure others. Others are measuring me up. Um, the, the word that also, that word can cause a lot of suffering. Um, be, trying to become 
you know, as, as you're growing up or, you know, uh, and I, I deal with it a lot in my classroom. Um, the perfect little girl or the perfect grades or the perfect this, and I have grown women that have meltdowns and cry if they don't get 100 on their tests. Or, I mean, I'm, and I'm looking at them and I don't understand this. I, for me, it, I, can't, I can't seem to understand how they feel like they're worthless or, or they're not smart enough or whatever if they don't have something that says 100 or an A plus or something. And, and some of them, they feel that if they cannot achieve perfection, they don't even wanna try. And, and, and I always ask them, and I says, I'm not asking you for perfection. That word never, is not part of my vocabulary. I says, I'm just asking you, today do your best. Do your best today. And if, and if your best today is a C, that's, that's perfect for me. And if tomorrow you're better prepared and you feel better and you're better rested and stuff, tomorrow you're gonna do better, and that's good for me too. But you see, what we have to understand is, you know, if we look at what, you know, so the way Subhuti is looking at it, right? And the way we are looking at it, Subhuti came from a world that was very fixed, right? Yeah. Fixed about not being fixed. Let's just put it that way, right? And we come from a world that, that is very attached mm -hmm. to that, right? So, so you may want, the, you know, students to feel this way about themselves, but this is so ingrained. Right? And, and, and what they hear, what we hear constantly is the opposite of that. That's why this is so air shattering because it goes against what we rely on and the way we function. We, we value ourselves and each other based on that. We quantify ourselves and each other. So here, this is saying, you can't. All of it is made up. Your measurement tools are all made up. You see, and, and this is why it's earth-shattering, right? This is why it's so shocking. Well, and it explains, in a way, why he broke down in tears, right? And actually, this is important here to, to move on from there, but this is connected in what Bill Polar is saying. Instead of stressing freedom from perceptions, as Subhuti does, the Buddha stresses freedom from fear, the absence of a psychological or emotional trauma yeah. that can arise from believing a doctrine that turns out to be devoid of any doctrine and that the Buddha calls the best doctrine of doctrine. Everyone believes on, everyone relies on some sort of teaching, but the best teaching taught by all Buddhas deprive those who would follow it of any teaching at all. At the same time, the Buddha's statement exposes the relative value of all teaching, including his own. So, so it goes to the heart of what we sit on, right, and how we think, and it messes with that. And it's also telling us, don't make of that what you make of everything else at the same time. So, so when you, when you uh, talk to your students, you're know, you asking them to do something huge. Not that you should not say it, but you should also understand that you ask him to get to go against himself, right? And this is what we practice. So we, we have to understand that although we may, you know, work with it this way and we use this language, most of the world doesn't. Most of the world fights against that. Right? We just have to keep that in mind. Not that we should not. Well, it takes a lot expand, of work, but we should definitely keep that in mind. This is what we are 
working is giving it in ourselves because we're not you know immune of that and other people society yeah well it's it's important to engage with our lives right we have to be actively engaging with what's happening and what's going on around us and things like that but you know i think it's also important to remember that that life is a flow and it's flowing and you can skillfully navigate the flow to the best of your ability but things you know when they talk about perfection perfection is just as is you know that in my mind is perfection you know it is everything just as it is and you know if you're going to fight against that that's the suffering that's the separation that you're creating you're creating a barrier between what's actually happening and what you think should be happening or, or how you think things should be now we i believe that we all have the ability to to change our lives to move our lives um, to be more in tune with what's going on but you know when it comes right down to it you know the universe is moving and you're part of the universe and to separate yourself from the universe is i believe um uh, you know, creating views and attachments and things like that, uh, you know, that's what causes the suffering. So, you know, a uh, long-winded way, perfection is, is just as is. And if just as is causes you suffering, then maybe take some steps to change just as is, if you can. Yeah, and, and also perfection is not in question. It's not in question because it's not in question. Yeah. Because it's it just is. the way it is. Yeah. We raise the question, we create a problem. Right, exactly. We're trying to answer a question that does not exist. And it takes us a long time to realize that essentially there is no question. Right? And it's, it's, it's liberating. It's, yeah, it's, but this is why I say here this teaching first strips away the self of ordinary people, it then strips away the, all the dharmas of beginning practitioners. Finally, it strips away the emptiness of arhats. Each of these is a terrifying experience. And this is actually a very important point, right? It's a terrifying experience because it's dying. It, something has to die. Or, or the feeling has to be as if somebody's dying. And there's no way around that. Because the perception for us is not a perception. What he's saying, the perception of himself, for us is not a perception. For us is real. We can just, you know, write it off, oh, this is a perception. There is no such thing as me. Well, it doesn't work this way, right? We have to actually look at everything that me is attached to. Because I am constantly being verified or look for verifications outwardly. And it keeps falling apart, and I keep putting it together, and it falls apart, and then I'm asking the world, is that it? It doesn't work. It's bound to fall apart. So he says each of them is a terrifying experience. How can we not have a self? How can there be not how can there not be a dharma to dharmas to cultivate? What is left if emptiness is empty? That's right. What is left is perfection. Only if I ask the question, I'm starting to mess with that perfection. But if I don't ask the question, if it's already seen as, of course it's perfect. Right? 
no measurements. Do not judge by any standards. Don't bring standards. We don't bring any standards. Who, who, when you look at trees, do, do I mean, some people do, but you know, we look at trees, right? <laughs> I do. Say, this, this tree is more perfect than that tree, and then right, landscapers probably do, right? But, <laughs> I just chop this one out because it's no longer nice. We just had that experience where they took Yeah, I saw that. I was like, how are they doing? I was, I was crying. I did. I got very emotional. <laughs> like, I got very Unless emotional. they were like diseased, I didn't see a reason yeah. to do it. But the disease is also perfect. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's, there's this uh, trees where we walk on, uh, on um, Mark Twain, right where I live. It's a long stretch. And I pass by there every time. And every time I, uh, I stop in the quarter, in the corner and across, I, I look at this tree and the branches, there were like like six branches coming out from like this and it's like an arm and it's, it's just perfect. To look at it, it's balanced, it's beautiful, it's perfect. And I saw this red ribbon tied around it and I'm like, I sit here and I see there and then I, I got an email and they're saying that they're cutting off these trees because they're afraid that it's going to fall into the electrical that uh, Orange Town is uh, going to come over and cut them down. And I'm like, he's nowhere near. And I'm looking at him. Maybe if we did what pretty much everywhere else does, where they put the right, power lines on the Even in that, fine. So, so right. that, that's not, that's not defining your view. That's, that's not dictating your view. So if, if something needs to be cut off because it is, it may create an issue, then let it be cut off. Right, so the cutting off is also fine. It's not not okay, but I'm just talking about you know we're just talking. This is talking about yeah. just seeing things yeah. as they are and not right. judging this in comparison to that. Yes, because this is that. Mm -hmm. We are taking the same thing and we're comparing it to itself and saying this is better than that. But this is that. What is that poem? Um, the rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I was also yes. thinking of. Um, the last samurai, where the, 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 the character in it, I can't remember, the Japanese, uh, the samurai guy who conversed with Tom Cruise, spent a large chunk of the movie trying to write a poem about. At the end, before he dies. Yeah. yeah, and then at the end, when he dies, it's perfect. Yeah. They're all perfect. Right, when he saw the, they were, yeah. Yeah, they were falling they were from falling the tree. falling right in the wind, and yeah. yeah. Right. So, um, parentheses. Yeah. Uh, are we going to have a bathroom break or can I go to the bathroom? <laughs> 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 I was just going to say I was 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 it does mean that this is not cumulative. It's not arrived at. It's not something to look forward to or to, yeah. Well, there is looking for, looking, right? Examining, but to seek without seeking, as one teacher once said, you know, ancient Chinese teacher, to seek without seeking. So there is such a thing. It's not that we are not practicing in that way, but how do we seek without seeking? I guess that's the, the kind of the paradox that I'm struggling with with this is upon perceiving that it's all empty, how do we understand our relationship towards uh, to striving, mm -hmm. to, to, to putting effort and care into our yeah. practice? 
right. even if it is to no end. I can see anticipate an easy argument here upon reaching this conclusion to go, well, why bother them? Why what's, try? What's right what's, effort? Yeah, what's right effort then? Right, that's the practice of right effort. Mm -hmm. Right, there is definitely a need for effort. But what is right effort? Mm -hmm. I feel like seek without seeking is, I think we all at one point, like the Buddha said, I'm not gonna leave until every being is awakened, right? It's just because we're not living in our nature. So that need, necessity, I guess it awakens in different, it, it, it's perfect, time is perfect. Like people that we may think, oh no, we don't know who and how, but the need of something, I need to seek for something that I don't even know what it is, but I know, we know we're not being truthful to ourselves. There's a part of us that at one point in life, it's like after maybe for people, you have the house, you have your kids, you have whatever the society sold you as, this is the perfection or this is happiness. And then we're like, I have everything. And there's something inside of me that it's not, it's still asking for something. But I feel it's not necessarily something that we need to get. It's just that, that we need to get rid of to really leave on our nature, right? But that's because we hear it here. Mm -hmm. But I'm talking about outside. So I think seek without seeking is like, at least the way I, I, I see it is, I don't know if I'm gonna wake up this life, next life, 20 more lives, I don't, I don't know. But I know that I, I need to do this. And I know I have to be here. And I know, not here space-wise, but I know I have to seek for something that I don't know, but I know somehow. Right, but that means practice Trust. Practice an awakened life. Don't wait for an awakened life to come. Practice an awakened life. That's what that means. And that does get deeper and deeper and deeper, and it is endless, right? You know, okay, so you realize something, but it's a big deal. Now, right? How do you practice it? How do you live it? That's the challenge. That's the practice itself. There's nothing else going on. It's just that. And that includes everything that's going on. And I was just going to say, um, I think part of the problem is that we view perfection as an accumulation of something and not an evolution, you know, um, an evolving that happens by itself. You know, and I, you know, as a teacher, it's really hard to deal with that, especially in the elementary grades. Um, when they've all been taught that when that that when they reach perfection is when they have all the right answers and they know and they're done, you know, but not knowing that they're not done. And that's okay because they're evolving. Mm -hmm. Right, and there is such yeah. yeah. And even getting that and then I was talking about it with my godson the other day because some like kind of thing where his mom was like, okay, I'll get you a new cell phone if you get straight A's this, you know, coming up in the marking period when we start. And I started to recall when I would get those those mandates from my mother or whatever growing up and I'd get it and then I'd 
kind of slack off because I got the thing and then and whatever, yeah. move on. You know, I don't have to keep trying. You go good at like diets or even that, or it was like, I want to lose weight. And you did nothing to really change your consumptive habits. You just yeah. went at it at this like super restrictive kind of, uh, you know, it, understanding gets back to the right effort question of if you're understanding discipline and things of that nature is resisting a force or like trying to impose an iron will against something you're not addressing it at its foundations it's you know are what are we doing in our daily practice that is building better grooves for the water to go through as opposed to just using all of our muscle to do otherwise just because he gets the grades that marking and also period. focus yeah. on, on not not sy symptomatically right yeah because symptomatically, you know, yes, we can address that, you know, and, and, and shoot down symptoms. But then, you know, where is it coming from? Yeah. You know, right, you're saying about diet. Uh, wh what, why am I consuming <laughs> all this? Not how can I tweak yeah. the consumption, you know, and you look at the root causes. Yeah. That perception is really important. Yeah, no, I know what happens, I know. But it's like, to speaking to that, it's like, um, it's like in society, in American society, says war on drugs, war on this, war on that, you know, yeah, but what's really causing this? Why are we warring with this when we just have to find that key element that's bothering everybody and, and, and somehow move it forward and evolve that, you know, so, yeah. Well, we have to I change the way we address it's everyday life. Yeah. Um, this is actually very important for uh, Yin Shun, says, because beings are confused by their everyday concocted views. Confused by everyday concocted views, by what we ourselves create, right? When they hear about ultimate emptiness, they can't help feel alarmed and frightened. Disciples of other religions uh, are afraid it will upset their supreme deity. Philosophers are afraid it will destroy their materialistic or non-materialistic conceptions. And students of Buddhism are afraid that if the wheel of rebirth st stops, they will have no place to stand because they, they rely on continuous, right? Another day, another life, another life, another life. Ultimately, I will at some point get there, right? Or realize. Thus, the Mahaprajna Paramita Shastra says, when the 506 hear about ultimate emptiness, it's like a knife in their heart. And it's, it's really, we have to look at that as ourselves, right? It's, it does feel like a knife in the heart. Because it does kill something. You smile, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't the, the notion that something has to die for something else to be, isn't that like antithetical to what we're talking about? Uh, no, actually, what this means is that it destabilizes everything. It's not really that, that something has to be uh, let go off, right, or, or be killed, right? It's the notion that there is something there has to be put aside, in a way, right? You know, the, or at least look at that how you develop a notion of a self in relation to something. But it doesn't matter to what, right? right. right. In relation to something. Now, the, the, the statement, when you meet the Buddha, kill the Buddha, right? Uh -huh. It's, yeah, you know, see what you make of it. Right. So really, what, what, what is dying are the views and attachments. 
Yeah, because you know, when you meet the Buddha, kill the Buddha. You're not killing anything. But it feels as if you are letting go of something. Mm. Right? Right. But, and that's the point. There's no way to jump over the sense of the grief. Yeah, yeah, the mourning. The, there is. Yeah. Okay. There is. Sense. There is such a thing. I mean, because we, we, we live like that. Right? Yeah. We've been living like that for a long time. And you do have to, you do have to engage with that in order to move forward in a healthy manner. Mm -hmm. Right. You can't bury it. No. What, yeah. what would you bury? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> That's the question. Well, you know, a lot of people bury it and a lot of people have mental illness, eh? A lot of people yeah. bury all this stuff. They don't deal with it at all. Yeah. Uh, right. when, when you have the sense of loss, you lost something, and, and there's a, a, a suffering, and there's an emotion, and there's that feeling of now I have to live my life without this, whatever this may be. My surround sound yes. system. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and it's a. Recently died. So, we'll move on to uh, a more practical uh, says The Buddha is concerned that the Buddha's understanding of this teaching begins and ends with prajna. But prajna does not exist in isolation and cannot be practiced without practicing the other perfections. Right? And this again and again, it comes right back to how we actualize it. Not just sitting around contemplating it. You know, it's got to be actualized, right? So in this, in this sutra, the Buddha focuses on three of the six perfections, namely those that undercut the three poisons, greed, anger, and ignorance. The perfection of charity, which counteracts the poison of desire. The perfection of wisdom, which destroys the poison of delusion. And the perfection of forbearance, which eliminates the poison of anger. Right? To, to bear witness, to experience, to open up. Although this sutra only mentions these three by name, each is closely related to the other perfections. Charity with morality, forbearance with vigor, and wisdom with meditation. Thus, by focusing on these three, the sutra provides instruction to all six. Right. It's good to make those connections again and again, right? To see that this is, everything we do, everything we read, everything we study, does not exist in isolation. It all points to the same thing. Actually, it all encourages us to do the same, to turn to the practice itself. And then Wichun says, there are three kinds of forbearance, of tolerance and patience. Forbearing the suffering of human affairs is called existential forbearance. Forbearing the physical and mental suffering from illness and exhaustion, as well as suffering from wind, rain, heat, or cold, is called material forbearance. And forbearing the birthless nature of all dharmas is called forbearance of birthlessness. The forbearance of birthlessness is the practice of prajna, of wisdom. To actually realize that nothing exists onto itself. We should say that, onto itself. So I'm going to read a little bit more and then we're going to finish with that. <coughs> so, to Subhuti, is the Tathagata's perfection of forbearance. No perfection. Right? The Tathagata's perfection of forbearance is no perfection. And how so, Subhuti? 
when King Kali cut off my limbs, my ears and nose, and my flesh, at that moment I had no perception of a self being alive or soul. I had early, I had neither a perception nor no perception. And why not? At that moment, Sabuti, if I had the perception of a self at that moment, I would also have the perception of anger. Or if I had the perception of a being, the perception of a light or a perception of a soul, at that moment I would have the perception of anger. But you can see what, what he's saying is that if I had the perception of a self, the emotion will also arise out of that. I am the one who is angry. I'm the one who wants to do whatever, do so, or retaliate. Right? So one gives birth to the other. If there's no owner, what is there? If there's no operator, then if, even if there is a feeling of anger, it, we or I am not identified with that and then there is just a feeling of anger to work with as an experience. But at that moment, there is no owner. So there is no, no one to protect. And how so, Subhuti? I recall the 500 lifetimes I was the mendicant Shanti and during that time, I had no perception of a self, nor did I have a perception of a being, a perception of a life, a perception of a soul. So, do you know what this is referring to when he was... Uh, yeah, the story is... The story about King Kali, do you know? King Kali once went hunting, accompanied by his harem of concubines. After pausing to eat lunch, the king lay down and took a nap while the women wandered into the forest to gather flowers. Eventually, they came upon the place where the ascetic Shanti, that was actually the Buddha himself, many lifetimes before that. He was sitting in meditation. They were so overcome by his serenity, they laid their flowers before him in, in an offering. Shanti then proceeded to talk to them about things they had never heard about before, right? Which they were eager to learn more. On waking up, the king went looking for his concubines, and when he saw them sitting before the ascetic, he flew into rage. When Sandy tried to explain that, that what he was teaching to them, the, the king decided to test Shanti and proceeded to cut off his hands, his feet, finally his ears and his nose. When the king saw that Shanti remained unmoved, he realized that he realized the cruelty of what he had done and asked Shanti for forgiveness. Shanti, Shanti said. He was not angry, and there was no need to ask for forgiveness. The king asked Santi to prove that he wasn't angry. Santi said, if there is no anger in my heart, may my body be restored to its original condition. And as a result of the merit Santi has accumulated over many lifetimes, his body was instantly restored. He then told the king, you have just used the salt of delusion to cut of the parts of my body. When I attain Buddhahood, I shall use the sword of wisdom to cut off your passions. Sandy was the previous incarnation of Shakyamuni, and King Kali was reborn as Kunadinya, the Buddha's first disciple. Interesting story. So, what do you think it's about? 
or how do we, what do we do with this story? So he let go of himself so much so that um, he didn't really view himself as separate from the person cutting off his limb. So the, the pain that caused him or the anguish, he wasn't angry about it. He was just going to use it in a later moment to, to teach himself basically something. Mm-hmm. Um, so by letting go of yourself completely and realizing What is gained? Right? What is lost when limbs are cut off? There is pain, right? But what is lost? Right. If you're not Foods. identified with your your body as um, your yourself, if you're viewing yourself um, as everything else or as something deeper than that, then you don't feel that attachment to the body, even if you feel. So let's make it a little bit less dramatic, right? And talk about our own sense of uh, failure, for example, or inadequacy, or, you know, yeah, wanting something and then not getting it, right? Or, or being uh, belittled by somebody, or being blamed for something, right? Let's, because those are the things we deal with, and this is where this really matters, right? How do we at moments like that, right, that we feel this intense emotion or rage, or how can you blame me? I did not do this. How can they blame me for something I did not do? And I'm going to go and do this and say that and retaliate. And, and sometimes we do need to say, but, but it's not so much about the action as much as the emotion, the intense emotion that arises out of a need to protect and defend something. And this is where this matters. Right? So it's not just a story, an ancient story to, to look at. It's really asking ourselves, you know, what am I in this? As we do with all, every aspect of practice, right? Especially precepts. It's not just reciting something, it's asking, you know, what am I about with this? You know, how, how do I work with that? Think about your perceptions, right? What if somebody says you're wrong? You're wrong, you're deluded, you're ignorant. Right? Depends. Maybe you do need to self reflect. <laughs> <laughs> right, maybe you do need to, you're absolutely right. Maybe you do need to look at something. Okay, but if somebody's ignorant, right? You're a practitioner, yet, you know, you're ignorant. Okay. Well, Buddhism is, it makes no sense, or Buddhism is stupid, or whatever, right? Or, or any achievement you've given, anything you've done, you know, somebody comes and ridicules it. I like what's said on the next page uh, by Yuan Wu, where it says, once you cross swords and responds with words of ill, when will it ever end? Right. And, and the truth is, it never ends. Yeah. Because there's always the, the, the possibility to act this way. Mm-hmm. Right? The more I defend, the more I feel the need to defend. Yeah. And you invite more attacks and more defense, and it's to what end? You know, I, I 
guess you could theorize, you know, eventually, you know, I think you get it in your head, one idea will eventually vanquish the other, or someone will give out, or someone dies, or whatever, and I don't, I can't really recall many times in which I felt that resolution without one person or the other eventually either giving in uh, for worse, whether it's just accepting that person's reality or them not giving in or, or them giving into something allowed, opened up the possibility for a way out, you, you know, you, utilizing energy to kind of untie the knot, I guess, because otherwise yeah, it feels endless. It's, you already feel the battle starting up when you feel that need to immediately respond back. Yeah. 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 So how can we uh, quell that? Mm. <coughs> I think it's interesting that Shanti's um, state is like, is the state of Zazen, without limbs and without senses, uh, and that um, he gets these back um, because he's not angry. And, and so, I'm not sure how to put all the pieces of this together, but um, in some sense, perhaps, um, you lose those um, capacities while sitting, and uh, can, they can be restored to you if you're in a state of non-anger, ignorance, and greed, um, so that you can use them in a way that's not going to be mutually or communally destructive. Mm -hmm. um, so that the, the Kali figure is as much internal, perhaps, um, as external. Yeah. And actually, uh, uh, it's good that you bring up the you know, Zazen, right? The state of being in Zazen, the state of uh, being boundless, right? You know, sometimes more, sometimes less but having no parameters, right? Having no limbs, having no body, right? And losing oneself to the environment and surroundings. And then the question of coming out of Zazen and seeing that and applying it. Applying it when we feel contracted or when we feel the need to contract, to expand or to operate from being expansive. That, that's the challenge of practice, right? This is where the robber meets the road. And perhaps even more with the, the desire for enlightenment. And if, I don't know if in your sittings this ever happens to you that a million people bring their flowers to you and heap their flowers around you because you have attained such a wonderful state. Um, but that seems to be also a piece of this, that in your sitting, whatever you've attained, if, um, if you still have anger, greed, and ignorance, which we all do, mm -hmm. um, you can have as many flowers as the world is full of, and it's still not going to um, mean anything when you go back into the world. Yeah, and then and then there is that duality of zazen and everyday life. Right? That's that's a very challenging duality to 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 merge. Good, okay, so we will uh, end this uh, section with that and we'll keep going next time. All right, that seems to be occupying us for a while and we'll just keep, keep. It's actually one of the good things about this is that it covers 
very deeply what we, what we practice. Right, so we're just going to keep going, and uh, at some point we will end it. <laughs> <laughs> at some point. Thank you.